0: The Energy Transition Podcast takes you directly to the cutting edge of the global energy sector's shift, with a specific focus on the critical role played by oil and gas, as well as the pathways developing around a lower carbon future. Your hosts, Leslie Beyer, Energy Workforce and Technology Council CEO, and Dan Pickering, founder of Pickering Energy Partners, are joined by Josh Lowry, president of Upright Digital. Each episode engages industry thought leaders in an exploration of market-moving trends and topics, including new technologies, ESG, capital markets, inclusion and diversity, workforce innovation, regulatory influences, and the voice of the people. Join us as the Energy Transition Podcast looks at the state of the traditional energy and oilfield service sectors emerging technologies, and the path ahead in a world of lower carbon energy development.
1: Welcome to the Energy and Transition podcast. My name is Josh Lowry. We are coming to you live from the Upright Digital Studios in Houston, Texas. I am joined as usual with the co-host extraordinaire, Mr. Dan Pickering. Hello, Mr. Pickering.
2: Josh, great to
1: see you. Good to see you too. This is twice in one week I've seen you. It is a pleasure to see you again.
2: Thank you. And, and- for our listeners who have no concept of time and when all this happens, it's what, December 8th or something like that. December so the, 8th, yes. So the holidays are upon us. They have,
1: they have arrived with Thanksgiving in the rear view and Christmas in front of us and Hanukkah is alive and it, it's go time. We yep. are right here. Yep, absolutely. So usually I start these podcasts by bragging about something awesome that I've done, but I went to something this week. There's no chance I can... Top this, so I really need to talk about you for a minute. <laughs> it was, we went to the Heart Energy um, 50th Anniversary Hall of Fame party, um, which was incredible. And you were honored as an ace. And what does the ace stand for? Agent of Change in Energy. Okay. And the agent of change in energy was a group of people that was honored for their role within the industry for now and it was but that's really a group of people that is doing exceptional things and has done exceptional things and and really what it is Dan is it's the future hall of famers of the industry, of the energy industry and what that group was doing was for the 50th anniversary is they were honoring the 50 inductees the initial class of the hall of fame class of the oil and gas and energy business um which you were the MC for one of the
2: panel or the panel not one of the panels um up on stage for the for the event it was really it was fun josh i mean a couple of comments i'd make which was it's the first thing you know it's the first time they've done this it's their inaugural hall of fame folks and i mean it was an impressive list yes. and a good, good chunk of those folks showed up. And so I've never, I've never been to an event that had as many sort of heavy hitters in the energy business, uh, in my life. And it was really cool to meet and see some of these people that you've only heard about. And, and mm-hmm. so they did a great job of, of capturing kind of some giants in the industry. You know, it was, they, they listed them alphabetically, but Red Adair yes. was the first one, right? A in the alphabet, but you know, Wild Well Fighter, I mean just a legend, right? A legend. And so it was it was a really cool event and then these aces, the 20 aces are basically, uh, you know, we're the young pups. I'm 55, but I uh, we're the young pups in the business, but um, you're right, I did moderate this panel which was so on stage with with Harold Ham of Continental yeah. Resources, Tom Petrie, a legend in the oh, yeah. financial services yeah. business. Um, in, in, around energy. And then Chris Wright, who speaks more eloquently about uh, energy and energy dynamics and decarbonization than anybody I know. And so um, it was just really fun to, to sort of be in the mix there. It was a great time.
1: Well, you know, you are a very humble guy and you won't pat yourself on the back like I will pat you on the back but truly it was just keep
2: your hands on my back yeah no I'll give you a hug yeah great truly it
1: was a pleasure to you know to watch you up there as your friend and uh just you know you you really are a great guy just as a person I tell people this all the time that ask about you um you do care about the industry you do move a lot of big puzzle pieces for the industry and really watching you kind of keep those guys you know, on point as each one of them. Hey, you have two minutes, and trying to get them to, to stay within the time limits was impressive.
2: Man- managing those three personalities with a timeline yeah. or a deadline was was exciting, um, challenging, and and fun for sure. Well, you're you're very nice to say that, yeah. and um, I think I'm going to I'm going to move us along to the main topic of today, and I think that that our guest today is going to be a lot easier to keep on deadline and and be, I don't know. He, he was there. He he was there and and um and we're excited to have you so Delanca Simon. Thank you for joining us. Um, you're the EVP and Chief Commercial Officer at Inlink. And for those of you that that are listening and like to follow along or or poke around on websites um, Inlink's website is www.e inlink.com. Um, so, DeLanka, welcome. Thanks for being here.
3: Yeah, thank you. Uh, thank you for the invite. Uh, it's good to be here. Yeah, good to see you. And twice uh, seeing you guys this week as well.
2: Exactly. Yeah. This is, I mean, it's a homecoming, practically.
3: What did, uh, before we get going, what did you think about that event? You know, my, my kind of thoughts are the same as, Dan, I don't think I've ever been uh, in kind of one room with so many kind of heavy hitters People who've really been the kind of the pioneers and kind of right. the godfathers of, of the business, particularly in the U.S., it was really remarkable. Yeah, yeah. it
2: was. I mean, it was great. And, and everywhere you yeah. looked, it Seriously. felt like, oh, there's that one. Right, <laughs> just, and and the CEO of InLink was one of the the aces. It's, so it's it was, you know, it was it was really neat, uh, really really neat. And and folks like. You know, Larry Nichols, who's this ex CEO of Devon, and Rick Muncrief, the current CEO mm-hmm. of, of Devon, were, were both inducted. It's just kind of fun to see kind of the generations there, you know, and, and you know, folks that, that are synonymous with the business Yates, George Mitchell, oh, you know, folks okay. who you hear a lot about. And, and it, it was really When cool. they opened
1: up with the picture of Red Adair, yeah. that yeah. really struck me. That was cool. That was yeah. pretty yeah. cool. It was very yeah. cool. So. Um, we have big shoes to fill in this podcast. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> right yeah. That's yeah. right. After, you guys, well, <laughs> having, having talked about, about <laughs> yeah. legends, yeah, that's right. this, is,
2: this is the podcast where DeLanka is going to become a legend. Um, so we always start kind of with the same spot, which is just tell us a little bit about you. Where did you grow up? How did you make your way into this business? You know, what have you done?
3: Sure, so I'll start right at the beginning. I was uh, born and raised in Sri Lanka, beautiful island on the other side of the world, Mm. uh, far away. Um, Coffee. And tea. Okay, coffee uh, and tea. Primarily tea and then uh, some coffee as well. Um, Had a great childhood, uh, amazing family, my parents, my sister, a lot of extended family and friends, unique and fun experiences growing up. Um, And then I got uh, a very good Opportunity was really lucky, really, to get a Rotary International Scholarship to go to university in the US. Hmm. Uh, the university they sent me to is Georgia College and State University in Middle Georgia. Okay. So I went from Sri Lanka to Middle Georgia, uh, studied economics and finance, I had a great time. Uh, and then uh, I joined a mentoring program uh, during college that they matched students with some executives in the Georgia Chamber of Commerce. And um, a t- turning point in my career, and maybe even not a overstatement to say in my life, would be when I was matched with uh, Paula Rossbitt Reynolds, who was at that time the CEO, president of AGL Resources. the mm. Atlanta uti- Gaslight. Correct. Yeah. The okay. utility, which under her leadership uh, grew substantially and was eventually sold to Southern Company. And Paula went on to have various leadership roles uh, in the energy sector, now sits on the board of GE and BP, wow. Okay. Uh, Etc. And uh, she facilitated my first role in one of uh, AGL's subsidiary companies, their trading arm, Sequent Energy, here in Houston, hmm. where I spent the next nine years. I started off in scheduling and did stints in structuring, uh, business development origination, and finally trading. So that was an amazing time, you know. During that kind of 2003 to 2011 time, time frame, you know, that was on the back of kind of the Enron, right? Enron uh, had just blown up, yeah. And then that that that's when kind of uh, the we were thinking of importing LNG, and mm-hmm. then you know six years later, looking at exporting LNG, shale was just coming on, massive build out in power gen, gas storage, etc. So fascinating time to kind of learn and kind of get that vantage point from on the trading side, uh, you know, being the intermediary between the producers and the consumers. Yeah. So that was really, uh, really a great time, uh, and I'm very fortunate to have got that start. Uh, from there, after a short stint, oh, by the way, during that time, I also went business school at Duke, uh, and also got married uh, to my amazing wife, which clearly is the best decision I've ever made. Uh, and then, and and you met her in college. I met here here in Houston at and, a party. Yeah. Oh well, okay. Also Sri Lankan, so oh that was, no way. Uh, yes, <laughs> way. Yeah, that that was that was quite quite unique and and fun. And then um, from there, I went to sh- two short stints at Wells Fargo Commodities and Southwest Energy, all in trading roles. And then went to BHP, it's one of the world's largest mining companies. BHP uh, famously spent $20 billion getting into the shale business Uh and uh, a couple of years after that I had the opportunity to lead the um, gas and NGL marketing and midstream group that was really responsible for uh, optimizing the equity production in the US uh, and then getting it from the wellhead to consumers. Uh So I I did that for a bit and, and I spent really the next Eight and a half years at BHP in multiple roles. I did a role in strategy and planning and then uh, as general manager for uh, all the hydrocarbon co- commodities we produced in this part of the world and then globally. And then my last role at uh, BHP was leading the team that did three things. One was uh, kind of the trading and marketing around our production globally around oil, gas and NGLs, as well as procuring energy for the company so buying diesel power gas Mm. for our mining operations Uh uh, globally and then the third part was the commercial accountability for our decarbonization and energy transition related activities so uh what what year was that this is like 2017 okay a time frame um that was the time when you know bhp kind of (coughs) started thinking about you know decarbonization well, they have been thinking for a while. That's when we started thinking about putting some targets around it. Eighty percent of our scope one and two emissions came from the use of diesel and power, uh-huh. and then in uh, the mining process, primarily. Mm-hmm. Yeah, in the mining process, and then our team was responsible for buying diesel and power. So we went on a journey: how do we decarbonize the power use? Did a lot of renewable PPAs, Australia, Chile, etc. And on diesel, you know, what are alternatives and By the way, there aren't many in the near term. Uh Uh, More on that later. Uh, But uh, as part of that, we started a (coughs) carbon desk in Singapore. Did did a global RFP for nature-based offsets as well as industrial offsets, kind of an origination effort there. So that was a really uh, good time. Probably one of the coolest roles I've had. Just a good vantage point on the on the um, energy system as well as uh, kind of that was when energy transition kind of started becoming. Uh, kind of a big theme towards uh-huh. the end of the last decade. And and kind of my insights from their role was that, you know, as we balance kind of energy security, affordability, and, and sustainability, infrastructure will be a, a theme and be ever more uh-huh. uh, important. And I thought it'd be cool to uh, go someplace and build a business around uh, uh, energy infrastructure. And, and I thought, you know, a best place to do that would be at a, Bigger firm that had existing assets, strong balance sheets, the capability, knowledge, etc. And that's what led me to energy transfer uh-huh. uh, to uh, set up their alternative energy uh, division, looking at opportunities for energy transfer in carbon capture storage, hydrogen, ammonia, low carbon fuels, etc. From uh-huh. the infrastructure side, uh-huh. not in the production of it, yeah, but on the uh, on the uh, moving it, correct. Yep. Uh, and uh, and I was actually having uh, an amazing time. There a lot of fun. You know, Energy Transfer has built a remarkable franchise uh, over the last two and a half decades. And, and it was a fun role. And during that time, I uh, got called uh, about this role at Endlink, uh, Chief Commercial Officer. And uh, Endlink also has a very good asset base, uh-huh. uh, and, and as well as have leaned into the low carbon space in ccs etc so um i thought that was a great opportunity to be part of a growth story jesse iranivas who's our ceo was putting together a team really to put the company on a growth trajectory and i thought you know have the commercial oversight of the traditional energy business that makes the money today but also accountability for the carbon solutions team that is developing new energy infrastructure would be a great opportunity so that's what got me here today just for do you live in dallas or houston
1: Houston. Okay. You've never lived in the DFW area, though. No. Okay. But I travel up to Dallas. I would think. Every week.
2: Yeah. Yeah. Okay. He knows. He knows both the Southwest Terminal and that highway very,
1: (laughs) very, very very well. I'm sure. 45 or yeah, Yeah, exactly. Love Field, one of the two. I
3: usually I usually fly because I'm not a good driver and I don't like driving that much. So I usually fly out. Okay.
2: If if he did drive. He would be listening to the Energy in Transition podcast, the nice whole upway. Nice plug. Up, up okay, way. See how good we are? We All yeah. Smooth. That's right. Throw that in there. <laughs> so, so, Delanka, just in Link for a second, help us for, for those folks that haven't gone to the website yet or don't really know. I know it's a, a billion and change EBITDA business, so I mean, it's a big business, but what is the business? Tell us a little bit about in Link.
3: Sure. Uh, so, in is is... Uh, I would describe as an integrated energy infrastructure company for natural gas, natural gas liquids, and crude oil. We own and operate gathering, processing, treating, transport, fractionation, storage, and terminals, okay. right? taking these commodities, gas, NGLs, and crude oil from producing regions to d- d- demand centers. Uh, we have leaned in to the low carbon infrastructure uh-huh. space. More on that later. In around particularly around carbon capture storage being the uh, transporter for that. Um, you know we are about six billion market cap public traded company as you mentioned about 1.35 billion EBITDA about a thousand employees. Um, a great asset footprint with growth opportunities both in the traditional energy space, uh, but as well as uh, in in the low carbon space. They've
1: had a great 20-year run, in Lincoln. They've, sure. they've done a lot in the last 20 years. Yep. You know, that's where I asked you, if where you, where do you live? Is I've had some friends that have worked for that company and they've just done well over the last yeah. 20 years. They seem like their management team is smart. They, you know, I'm sure you mentioned a couple of the people. And didn't you say one of the guys was- a,
3: a, He was one of the aces, the CEO, Jesse was yeah. An ace. Yeah, I mean,
1: that's, they've got good people up there. I'm sure the, yeah. how do you enjoy working there so far? I mean, because you're- Yeah, it's great.
3: Look, the the company culture is great. You're right, they've built, built again. Uh, remarkable franchise uh, over a couple of decades, uh, very good assets, good people, and, and a lot of growth opportunities for us.
2: Yeah. You know, and one of the things, Josh, we <clears throat> our podcast has been primarily folks like Tulanka that are straddling conventional energy mm-hmm. and, and new energy. But um, when you think you talked about the growth of, of InLink, if you think about what the U.S. has done on the traditional hydrocarbon side i mean we've gone from 75 bcf a day of gas production to 105 we've gone from 5 million barrels a day of oil to 13 you know shale boom all that and so everybody tends to think about upstream when they think about that but it's all got to move yeah right it all has to get from point a to point b or c or d or wherever whatever point it's going to so um midstream has been a really kind of sneaky winner and all that because big time because the volumes move regardless of the price mm-hmm. <laughs> so that's a pretty sweet spot to be when you're getting paid if oil's 50 or 150 um so as you said Dilanka, you're you started in in gas trading and and moved through various sort of leadership roles you know and now i, I think you're one of the top five or six guys at at Inlink so um <clears throat> Talk to us a little bit. If you if you went back and looked at a hinge, was it you kind of got out of the trading business, you know? Uh, but I mean, was that a defining moment for you, or what? How do you think about key elements of getting to here?
3: Yeah, no, that's exactly right. First of all, I'm like very fortunate to have kind of stumbled upon the energy business, uh, as I had described how I how I got there, which is just so dynamic and has lots of very very good. Uh, g- good people really enjoyed it. Now, one of the key additions was indeed when I joined BHP, having spent uh-huh. about 10 years in kind of the trading side yep. in the US, kind of learning the gas grid, etc. Going to BHP was kind of a departure from kind of more the trading, kind of the frontline roles like that to a more a multi-commodity, but uh-huh. much more global uh, yep. p- perspective. Uh, and that, that was kind of really fun because it kind of broadened kind of my vantage point um, on, on the energy system. And then the second point was when I left BHP to go to energy transfer to kind of dabble in new energy infrastructure. That was a bit earlier, uh-huh. uh, as just as it was getting started. Yeah. So to have kind of a front line seat around what are the challenges, what are the opportunities um, in trying to develop this energy system. Uh, for this uh, you know, energy evolution. That's
1: okay. what I, that, at 2017. Correct. That's why I was asking you what year that was. And, and one of the themes <clears> that we hear on this with the guests is a lot of, you know, the people that we have in here are these early adapters. And they see it. Did you see something coming? Were you trying to look for the next thing? Or is it, I, I don't, I mean, you seem very prepared. So I don't think that much of your life has been happenstance. Were you
3: are you kind of looking at where the puck is going to be for lack of a better metaphor how did you did you know it was going to be there no i, I can tell you can't, can't take credit for that it was really my role at bhp i think which really helped so around that 2017 time period that is when we were kind of really starting to look at what are the levers mm-hmm. to decarbonize power use what are the levers to decarbonize diesel use okay uh and and our team had kind of the commercial accountability for looking at that we had a technical team that looked at the technical levers and kind of the merging of those to like okay, what makes sense? What's possible? What's yep. possible and when? And if we don't have something today, what might be emerging ideas? Mm-hmm. And that is kind of where I kind of got the kind of on-the-job training, right. so to speak, which which then in twenty twenty one is when I uh, made the call to go into energy transfer okay. to kind of do that more. On okay. the that was twenty one. Yeah, okay.
2: yeah, and and. We're going to spend a lot of time in in the low carbon side, but um, you've been around this, all pieces of this business for a long time. We've got LNG exports and all of those issues here in the States right now. Um, How do you think about gas and the kind of the future of gas? Are are we going to, are we, what's your target for LNG exports or, you know, I mean, just again, you're watching it. Tell us where it's going.
3: Yeah. So first of all, you know, if you were to think about gas, first of all, gas is pretty abundant and extraction methods are pretty homogeneous, right? So which means gas is always going to be pretty well priced and affordable. So okay. if you think about if you think about it from the lens of kind of the energy trilemma, so it's gas is affordable fuel. Um, you know, it occupies about twenty five percent of the global energy mix today, as does coal. Coal is about twenty five percent of the energy mix. So coal-to-gas switching is actually one of the best levers we have uh, for, for, for decarbonization mm-hmm. because because g- gas is m- much more lower carbon footprint than than, than coal. Um, and then we've figured out a way to transport gas, store gas, transport it internationally via LNG, etc. Uh-huh. And we've continuously tweaked that to where we've reduced the costs in, 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 in that chain. Uh-huh. So in that respect, Natural gas is a very versatile uh, fuel. And even with um, what I'm sure will be a remarkable continued growth in renewables into mid-century, I think gas will continue to play a significant role uh, in the energy mix, Mm -hmm. particularly in the context of that the world is continuing to need more energy, uh (sighs) and there's a substantial amount of the world that doesn't have access to continuous energy, right? Right. The part of the world that I grew up for an example, right? So, so I think I think gas uh, play, plays a huge role and and then in the US has a great opportunity to kind of produce this uh, sustainably produce it well responsibly and then export it uh, so that's not only bodes well for the energy producers in the US but also for the midstream companies the infrastructure companies like ourselves everybody moving it yeah do you think that
2: one of the things and and I've talked about this for a number of months now and haven't haven't done the work um Russia and the Ukraine and, and cutting off Europe and everyone's kind of trying to step in and fill the void of 20 BCF a day of gas that's, that was going from Russia to the, to the European Union. Do you think that you think we'll oversupply in the, in the rush to fill the gap? Are we going to have too much gas on a global basis at some point or does that market sort of normalize because LNG is so expensive it's hard to oversupply the market because everything gets contracted
3: look in the energy business we are kind of famous for rising to the occasion Mm. uh, very quickly particularly in in the US yes and and that does create these these swings but I go back to Dan kind of the fundamental role of gas as part of the energy mix right so while there will be periods of oversupply and undersupply over time through mid-century I think uh, gas will continue to have have, have a strong bid yeah. uh, globally. Uh, you, you think uh, we'll
2: get coal use down?
3: Yes, I okay. do think that. Yeah. Yeah. Yes,
2: yeah. Are you uh,
1: through just conversions? by replacing it? By just yeah,
2: yeah, it, just yeah. by turning it off and turning on. You know, it, it, they're still building coal yeah, in China, said, but, <laughs> <what> um, <clears throat> but other places are trying to push pretty hard. Which is
3: why I think it's crucial to build the infrastructure. Not only from the U.S. perspective, I mean, there's a lot of gas in, in, in the Middle East. There's a lot of gas in Australia uh-huh. and other parts of the world. That, that's that's the good thing. There's a uh, uh, Unlike oil, uh, gas reserves are actually quite abundant. And, and there's kind of the extraction methods have been tweaked over time. So, uh, so it's the infrastructure bill that is necessary to kind of get uh-huh. that to the right places as well as then export it. Yeah. Th- liquefied, regasified, get to the demand points. Mm-hmm.
2: Is, talk to us, we've talked about gas, talk to us about, this is a high level, but I mean, net zero. Should we be trying to get to net zero? Do you think we can? What t- What sort of time frame? You're living in this world now for six, seven <coughs> years or more. So, what do you think? Sure.
3: Well, first of all, let me say, like, my personal view, right? Yeah, no, yeah. Not, not, not as a company view, but, um, my personal view on net zero is this, if, if we as a global community say we have to get there at any cost no matter what, I think technically with, with what we know now and with some reasonable assumptions on technological advancements, we can get there. So now, it is feasible. It is feasible. But it doesn't mean that we will or that we should, because in doing that, we will have to make choices, some harsh choices, right? It will require kind of investment dollars. I mean, you've heard the numbers. Yeah. I mean, it's almost silly to kind of think about trillions, going into this trillions, space, trillions yeah. of dollars, going into this space, which means it'll come at an opportunity cost of it not going to other spaces mm-hmm. like yeah. building roads and airports and dams and other things, right? So so money will flow. Right. money will have to flow there it will mean increased energy costs. um, And and the people who will be most impacted by that are the multitude of people living in non-OECD countries who are energy impoverished today. So their opportunity to emerge from that situation to a situation that some of the developed countries uh, enjoy today is going to get compromised. So you will have to make these choices. And some of these are pretty brutal. So Uh I don't know whether... We will, as a global community, will be able to coordinate to do that and and what you know what the unintended or sometimes intended uh, consequences might be mm-hmm. so that's why I think the path to net zero, while technically possible uh they have some real constraints to it now absent some technological kind of innovation and scale and acceleration. Cold fusion. That we can't see right just this second.
2: Mm -hmm. You know, Josh and I were talking before we started recording. This is, it's the end of the year. Nobody really wants to come and do a podcast the week of Christmas, Uh, no surprise. But we're talking about putting together this sort of best clips from, I think we recorded 12 or 18. 18 podcast this year. Walker stepped in for you. He did. But, um, but I think that discussion of net zero is going to make the best. of. That was a great explanation. Just because it was so r- right. You said we can, but whether we should or will still up in the air. Congratulations. I think is, yeah. That's You've a, done it. Yes. That was really, <laughs> yeah, that's, right. that's right. That's right. We're going to, we're going to, we're going to. Lord, Market. He's done it. That's, yeah. a, that's going in the clips. Right. So Delanca, you're You're the chief commercial officer, which means, I think the way you described to me is you're out in front of your customers all the time. So what are the customers? What are, and I assume that means the big industrial companies, et cetera. What are the hot buttons for them around, you know, low carbon decarbonization, et cetera? What do you think is important to them?
3: Look, I think a lot of our customers are really grappling with the scale and pace in which they lean in mm-hmm. to the decarbonization space. Uh, now, in the US, of course, the policy support helps some of them to kind of yep. take those first steps necessary. This is the IRA and tax credits. That's right, yep. that's right. And and uh, but what, where, what everyone's thinking about is where and when might consumers' propensity to pay for low carbon commodities emerge, right? And uh, I've been kind of thinking about it, you know, since the mid part of the last decade, and and we, you know, there there's some evidence that maybe the kind of the pet chem related kind of plastics and th- those consumers might have some propensity. Some of the uh, in 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 vehicles, for an example, in EVs, you've demonstrated that that those consumers have have. Uh, some willingness to pay, but it has not emerged very, very mm-hmm. clearly.
2: Mm-hmm. And, and, and I want to just clarify, propensity to pay, meaning folks are interested if the IRA is paying for right. it. Correct. But you're, you're saying, nope, I'm going to put a cost on carbon and I'm going to pay to abate. And so I want to spend my hard cash right. to do it. And it sounds like folks are trying to figure that out and they're not rushing.
3: People want to do better, yeah. but at what cost? That's right. So so while the policy support maybe helps them to get going now, over time, there has to be it has to normalize somewhere, and someone has to pay for it, mm. right? So whether that gets translated to a tax that everyone pays, or is mm-hmm. it more per commodity where people can choose to pay or not? That's the that that that's the big question.
2: Mm-hmm. And and what industries? Again, think back to your BHP days as well. What industries do you think are most forward-leaning? You said maybe plastics, but um, is it different? Is it different by, you know, some care more about carbon capture, others are thinking about hydrogen, or is it all kind of a blanket in the minds of of the clients these days? Look,
3: I think when, when you're looking at decarbonization, first of all, you have to think about kind of the abatement cost per sector. I think this search for like a silver bullet is 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 a is a tough proposition, uh-huh. right? So you just got to try to figure out what is the best decarbonization decarbonization solution for that particular use case, um, and and going from kind of the B- BHP days, you know, we we found like for an example for for nickel, uh, we we found that some consumers uh, in in the battery space would uh-huh. pay a little bit more for kind of sustainably. Uh, produced um, nickel uh-huh. as I mentioned in the plastic side I mean y- there's some evidence that there's there is a uh, interest in paying for, for that in the aviation space you know you can buy kind of carbon offsets yep. for your flights things like uh-huh. that so there was SAF, oh, SAF too. some, I guess, some evidence yeah. evidence there so then SAF is one thing that enables that uh- what, what is SAF I should should I I'm sustainable s- sustainable aviation fuel
1: okay yeah United actually now that you say that
2: cooking oil to jet fuel okay kind of um
3: but there is there is not a whole scale sector where you can say okay this sector is clearly the -hmm. the 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 leader Mm -hmm. not yet
2: yeah so you guys you guys in link um as a midstream company you're you're focusing on the low carbon you called it an area of opportunity which is we've come quite a ways josh i would say in the last five years because, you know, the the traditional oil and gas industry was perceived as fighting decarbonization for a long time. And I think particularly the midstream and and the OFS sector are sort of waking up to this. like, wait a second, we can make money at this. So, you know,
1: I don't mean to hijack your interview here, but on that note, the my conversations are changing um, with the friends and that we have in the oil and gas industry with the term ESG is mm-hmm. you know people are dissecting it a little bit differently now and they're understanding that you know that term doesn't mean what they thought it did it doesn't have this totally negative connotation they're, under, they're able to tell you know exactly what it means and they do know that hey we're doing a lot of great things now and then we do need to highlight the the E the E S, and the G and then they talk about you know in, in that same vein here's what we're doing with regard to our clean drilling and here's what we're doing to our digitization and I I heard this conversation just within the last week, and there was one out of five people that was really just hammering on you know that term and and that whole you know we do oil and this is how we do it, and the rest of the four people were kind of pushing back on them, and I thought this conversation wasn't happening a year ago,
2: mm-hmm.
1: and I was thinking you, you know. Basically, this podcast is working. I will take full credit yeah, for this. Yeah, there you go. Uh, but, I mean, really, the conversations, joking all joking aside, like these conversations, as you said, an area of opportunity that big companies are taking, you know, viewing it that way, this wasn't happening a right. year or two, three, whatever the number is, it, you yeah. know, however period of time. So I agree with you. And you're
2: right. They are looking at it differently. Yeah. So you guys have several carbon capture projects. And so That's maybe right. let's, you know, I think a year ago... November of 22, or maybe October of 22, uh, there was an announcement with you and Exxon. I want you to talk about that. And then just last month, you, you've you announced a, a new project, a different project in partnership with BKV. And so tell us about those so we can kind of understand what, what it really means for a midstream company to be in the low carbon business.
3: Sure. You know, Enlink was, I think, one of the earlier midstream companies to kind of lean into okay. opportunities in, in 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 this in this space and that was actually what one of the points that kind of brought me yeah uh, uh to, to this role and 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 you said it said it right and has been looking at opportunities in this space for several years and 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 last year was able to uh do a deal with exxon to mm-hmm. be a, a transporter of co2 to support their low carbon. Energy divisions' ambitions in the CCS space, yeah, focused in the Mississippi River corridor, okay, which is where NLink has most of our downstream assets, okay. Um, that was a good opportunity for us because that is kind of our home base. If you would, EnLink uh, owns two of the four market systems that take gas to the Mississippi River corridor industrial uh, region, which has about 80 million tons of CO2 in that area and uh, Exxon was developing an integrated CCS solution for them, and it was a um, great opportunity for us to partner with them on the transportation bit. Now, we are working with others as well uh, mm-hmm. in, in, in the same region. There's a lot of emissions, a lot of nearby sequestration sites, and our strategy as NLink is not to be involved in the capturing of CO2 nor the sequestration of it, but just be the transport provider of choice. You are literally uh, in, in the Louisiana. The yeah, That's right.
2: And and, and so, Delonka, two questions around that. Um, one is, tell us about how it physically works. This CO2 is going in repurposed gas pipelines, or is it going to new lines? So, do you build new stuff or repurpose old stuff? Question one. And then question two is, you know, I think back to a couple of years ago, Josh, when we had some CCUS guests on, and it was... Things weren't really moving. It was a concept, but the emitters that that 80 million tons didn't didn't know what to do. We've had the IRA since then. I mean, are are these things breaking loose now? I mean, is this about to really be a much bigger business?
3: Look, it, it is breaking loose, but it is slow. Yeah. It is okay. slower than most people would like because this is these are difficult things to do, right? Which is why I think the oil and gas sector, the traditional. Uh, energy players are pretty well suited to do this stuff because they're used to doing difficult things, Yes, right? It is going to take some time uh, to, to, to get there. But you are seeing some transactions happening, some of the feed studies happening, and some of these projects getting uh, FID'd. Um, feed study,
2: front-end engineering de- design, design right. and Correct. FID is final investment decision, right? That's right. Okay.
3: If you were to think about our uh BKV partnership in North Texas, Mm -hmm. Uh, you know, natural gas processing is one of the lower hanging fruit for carbon capture because, you know, natural gas comes out of the ground and it has a bunch of different things, H2S, CO2 amongst them. And you're already separating the CO2 from the methane before the methane goes into gas pipelines. Mm -hmm. So you already have a CO2 stream. A pure CO2 stream. That was previously being vented. Now we are capturing that about two hundred and ten thousand tons a year, worth of it, and then partnered with BKV to sequester it. Uh-huh. So that's a good example of where NLink has moved pretty quickly uh, to, you know, do what works today, right? That's a great in idea. partnership with yeah. uh, someone who's an expert in the subsurface part.
2: And and Dilanka, that's where that's an example where InLink is an emitter. Correct. Correct. Right. So you're taking. You're not just moving other people's CO2. You're saying, Hey, we're creating some, and we're going to do something with it. That's right. And, um, and in doing so, is that a NPV positive decision given the IRA? Do you make money by taking that CO2 and and sequestering it? Is it a
3: yes? It is. In this case, it is. It is a creative, because it's a concentrated. Pure stream CO2 nearby sequestration. That's right. Nearby yeah. sequestration site, etc. So, so it's all about um, then you know doing what works today mm-hmm. quickly yep. and learning from it, bringing costs down, and that's the only way you're going to scale, right? Mm-hmm. It's the same thing that happened in solar or wind. You got to start somewhere. I feel like that's then you such scale. a good example
1: of a way to do something simple. I'm not saying it's simple, but it feels that was it's a good it's a great idea are other companies doing that as well yes there are okay others.
3: good because we, we are not we are not the only one we are kind of in one of the earlier ones okay doing it we've already brought it to market uh, now uh, three weeks probably we've been now uh, active uh, operational oh. rather uh, but there are others doing it i mean i think this natural gas processing related co2 being captured and sequestered is something you prob- probably can see yeah, uh, that's going to In the near term, yeah. because it's one so that works.
2: Idea. Yeah, yeah, and, and the question about are we doing old pipes with CO2 or are we creating new pipes? What's the,
3: so how does it mechanically a, work? It'll be a combination. So if you have relatively new, well-maintained existing pipelines, yes. you could use it for okay. CO2 service, but under low pressure. Okay. Okay. Which means lower volumes. Which means lower volumes. Okay. You need bigger pipelines to move lower volumes, whereas new build pipelines will be built in under high pressure pipelines. You call it dense phase, uh-huh. where you're pressuring the CO two to a point where it's kind of Almost. between a gas and a liquid. Okay. So you can move much more volumes for that. You generally have to build okay. new pipelines.
2: And so you're your project with exxon probably means new pipe in the ground then from it's a combination combination yes. okay
1: and just i know we're going to move on here but your ca- that project is only about three weeks old a month old somewhere in that active the north texas bkb project yes i would love to come back to you guys in a year and just figure out how great that went and just see like yeah this is what we're able to do because those are the kind of metrics that you can say look you know north texas this is the kind of difference we're actually making correct i feel like that's going to be such a a great number that the uh, the industry needs to hear about that, yeah. that people need to understand the oil and gas industry the midstream industry is is making out there so I want to I definitely we're gonna try to see if we can remember to,
2: there we go we'll to come, we'll come back on that we'll remember for sure yeah when when we're kinda of, we're so you've got a couple of specific projects you're working on and, and have announced I'm sure there are others um, help help us and our listeners with i mean just the general economics around carbon capture because i i feel like we've talked about this a lot but i don't know that we've covered it post ira which i think makes such a difference but i mean what are the who gets what in this process you got emitters you got transporters you've got sequesterers who gets what slice of the pie
3: sure so you're absolutely right there are three big components here, the capture bit, the transport, and the sequestration, right? So the goal is to try to minimize the cost in all three uh-huh. segments, right? Now in the Gulf Coast, we have this rather unique situation where we have sequestration sites in pretty close proximity to emission sources. Because that that's just the geology. That's just the geology, okay. right? Um, and it's kind of going back to kind of the earlier days when I started looking at this, um, that's the kind of the trifecta you need to get this going now before you start moving CO2, you know, hundreds and thousands of miles Uh um, uh, away. So when you think about those three segments that the sequestration and transport part of it is probably the, the, uh, easier. I'm not saying it's easy, easier uh-huh. one to kind of get get your head around because ultimately it's about a sequestration side development strat well and then a ultimately an injection well and it's all about what kind of scale you can sequester and how long and how much CO2 you can put in that under that well bore, right? So that will determine how much it's going to cost to do the sequestration part. The pipeline is unsurprisingly how? Distance. What's the distance? Yeah. How much CO two are you are you, uh, are you going to flow through it? This the capture part is the harder part because not all CO two emissions are created equal. So different processes have different costs to capture it. Uh-huh. So you can uh, bifurcate CO two sources very broadly into two categories: pre-combustion and post-combustion. Pre-combustion means you haven't combusted it yet. Yep, so therefore, it's a pure, st- you can you can separate the CO2 from, you know, say the natural gas stream for an example, or any other stream. And then you have a pure stream of CO2 that's coming out. And that is actually cheaper to capture. The post-combustion is when the fuel has been burned. So the coal has been burned or the natural gas has been burned. And now from the flue gas, you're trying to, Capture the CO two, and then lower
2: concentrations.
3: That's right. So that is more expensive, and that also further differentiates between what process Uh you're 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 looking at. So the focus today, I think, is more on the pre-combustion sources like like the natural gas project in Texas. That's right as well as kind of ethanol production is, is one of them. Um, uh, SMR, ATR, steam methane reforming, autothermal reforming in the production of hydrogen, and then ammonia is another opportunity. So that's what you know, people in this sector call maybe the low-hanging fruit. Uh-huh. So that's what needs to be, be focused on, uh, on on first. That is the more expensive part. Now, the $85.45Q, so that is the policy incentive you have today. $85 per ton of CO2 sequestered and you have that for 12 years from the time you start okay okay from that 85 the majority of that goes into the capture bit okay and the transport and the storage is probably the so more more than half
2: of the pie more than half of that 85 bucks a ton correct is gonna go to the capture piece because you got to build a big facility or something that's right Um, unless you're capturing this pre-combustion.
3: And again, it depends how much of that power goes. That depends on is it pre-combustion, post-combustion, et cetera, right? Mm -hmm. But the reality is for most post-combustion CO2 emissions, the $85 credit doesn't still work. It's It's not enough.
2: It's not enough. It's not enough.
3: So two things need to happen. Either that needs to increase or... It can stay the same. Somebody is willing to pay more. The emitter oh. has
2: to say, I will pay to capture the CO2
3: because I want to do
1: good or, or whatever it is. feels Correct. like that's back to your first question. People want to do well, just at
2: what cost? Yeah. No, that's right. That's right. Um, so what's what's your, your injection volumes in Texas or roughly how much?
3: It's about 210,000 tons a year. A year
2: and um a big a big project you know uh, a big project would be what a million tons a year or
3: that's right so some of these sequestration sites typically we you know to have a scalable sequestration site you need to have you know kind of per well one to two million uh-huh. kind of tons and then you have to have like couple of those wells right so uh a, a, most of the scalable sequestration sites that are being developed kind of generally talk about, you know, four to six, eight tons a year of sequestration. Mi- million tons, right? Million yeah. tons. Mm-hmm. Sorry, four to six yeah. to eight million tons of sequestration capability per year. Yeah.
2: So in this Mississippi River corridor that you were talking about, there's 80 million tons of emissions. That's a, we're going to need eight or 10 projects. To, right. to handle that if it, if it were all to be sequestered. That's right. So uh, that's the kind of, that's the prize for you guys is you're going to move all that. You want to move all that around. That's
3: right. So so our kind of stated aspiration is to be the CO2 transporter of choice in the state yep. of Louisiana, yeah. particularly around the Mississippi River corridor, which is our backyard.
2: Yeah. Um, so carbon capture, moving moving CO2 around, that's, that is clearly the... The thing that NLEEC is doing, having success with right now and focused on. But you mentioned a minute ago, you mentioned hydrogen, you mentioned um, ammonia. Um, are those, where do those stand relative to carbon capture in terms of opportunities? Is it, is it, it feels more expensive, but is it much earlier? Is it never going to happen? How do you think about things
3: like hydrogen? Yeah. So if you were to talk about hydrogen for a bit, uh, Dan, I think you've heard me say this before, we've got to think about, you know, the use of hydrogen uh, and how it will compete with its, com- with its other competitors for that intended use, mm-hmm. right? So what I mean by that is, if you were to think about clean hydrogen for use in vehicles, in light-duty vehicles, okay. fuel cell electric vehicles, for an example. Well, you have strong competition from EVs, yep. which are just beginning lithium to battery, comp- EVs, lithium yeah. battery mm-hmm. EVs, which is just beginning to compete now with ICE uh, right. internal combustion engine vehicles, right? So there you have a strong competitor. So will hydrogen win there? I'll Difficult. say no. Yeah, yeah. <sighs> unlikely. Yeah, but in some applications, in very heavy heat applications, in kind of steel making, for an example, you know, direct reduction iron is is one of the you know steel making is you know seven to nine percent of global emissions and is one of the hardest to decarbonize now there hydrogen actually could play a role because it doesn't have many other options for decarbonizing steel right if you think about um, you know ammonia for an example you know they are there in Japan they're trialing coal burning ammonia with in coal fired power generators in, in an effort to reduce the carbon intensity uh-huh. of, of that coal fired p- power plants, now that's an example of when that could, yeah. that could be and so using
2: the, it as a drop in fuel almost. That's yeah. right.
3: That's right. So the so the pace and scale of the development of hydrogen, clean hydrogen, um, will depend on are we able to match that production with the right and most efficient use, uh-huh. right? And of course, in the U.S., again the IRA. Uh, Through the 45V has has some policy support for uh, clean hydrogen Uh, both green hydrogen which is the electrolysis based production as well as blue hydrogen which is smr atr with carbon capture Uh Uh, and uh, particularly in blue hydrogen um, there's some evidence that the economics kind of begin to begin to work and there are multiple projects announced there are three or four projects that's actually FID, so to produce hydrogen and either use it as hydrogen or to convert to ammonia, to be exported overseas. So, so it's getting that, closer. It's getting closer, but I think, I think carbon capture, it feels the path to scalable deployment there, yeah. is a bit sooner, uh, than in hydrogen. Now, how does it connect to what we do? Again, you know, like what I like to say is as the sources and uses of hydrogen grows, right? Hydrogen has particularly, so far, been used in petroleum refineries and in fertilizer applications, right? But now, hydrogen is going to be used in energy applications, for an example, right? So the uses are growing. Mm -hmm. Sources of hydrogen is growing from the traditional use. We have about 75 million MTPA of hydrogen produced in the world today. That'll grow uh, with you know SMR, ATR technology, with carbon capture, electrolysis, etc. So when this, when more hydrogen gets produced, what do you need to do? You need to move it. You need to store it. You have to ex- export it. Uh-huh. Say as ammonia, for an example. Well, what that needs again is infrastructure, pipelines, storage, terminals, etc. So I think again, a uh, uh, opportunity for midstream companies to. Uh, play in that space uh-huh. to kind of en- to build the enabling infrastructure yep. to get that hydrogen economy going.
2: Interesting.
1: I am just looking at this, Dan. This is the most well-prepped conversation we've ever had. Have you paid attention to these notes that we've made? And I'm looking at your notes. This is excellent. We are on track. <laughs> Josh
2: can't, Josh can't
1: believe I, it. We, we never do this. We usually bounce all over the place. I'm having a hard time. keep. I'm like, where are we? This has just been remarkable.
3: This is great. Well, Dan did send me some bullet points this morning. <laughs> it's unbelievable. About, yeah.
2: I, gave, I'm, I gave him 37 minutes to prepare. That's, right. so <laughs> that's, that's all you get. That's right. That's right. I
1: mean, we're doing great. The, ne- just,
2: the next one on our, on our scheduled list is, is Game Changers. I mean, which, which really means... It is. Yeah, <laughs> which really means innovation, right? And and so in the seats you've been in for the last three or four or five years, what what do you look out there and say, hmm, I got to keep my eye on this? And it doesn't necessarily have to be something in LinkedIn. but I mean, you've looked at a Your lot of Your
1: 2017 stuff. brain. Yeah. Where yeah. you said, yeah. this is where it's going
3: to go. Yeah. All the way. What have you learned? Look, I, I, I think you this might... Uh, disappoint you, but there isn't like one silver bullet, I think, right? I think uh, CCS probably has is emerging, at least in my mind, as one of the more scalable uh, mm-hmm. opportunities. Like if you take a step back, if you were to think about the kind of the world energy landscape and just do the math, the math is actually quite brutal, right? A shift away from hydrocarbons is just not feasible because of the growing energy demands in the world with speed you're saying with with, with speed right mm-hmm. now event like right, at least for the next couple of decades now over time uh, yes th- that'll happen particularly as uh, renewable power wind solar etc you know continues to grow so therefore the the challenge then is how do we today make this more sustainable reduce the emission footprint of the of those uh, mm-hmm. uh, of those processes, and and carbon capture probably offers kind of the best scalable you know Uh near-term solution uh if we prove to ourselves that we can capture transport and store it safely and that's up to us to do that well Uh over the next couple of years and that's what will help help it scale of course i think wind and solar the electrification team will continue to do its thing i think batteries will play a big role in that Uh to solve the intermittency issue and i think you know battery costs are coming down and new kind of battery chemistries are being developed. I think there'll be a lot of technological innovation there to maybe rely less on the more insecure su- supply chains. Uh-huh. Um, and then, of course, I'm secretly hoping it's kind of nuclear will will, you know, somehow emerge um, over the next uh, couple of decades. Though, though, it doesn't seem to be uh, anything here in in, in a hurry.
2: Uh-huh.
3: Now. If, if if we can figure out a way to kind of, you know, bring down the costs of clean hydrogen production and use that more in kind of the heavier heat applications which are very emissions intensive. I mean that could play a part as well. So I think the the the, the answer is if, if if there is a breakthrough, I think it should be in the coordination. There is a coordination issue. How do we, you know, put the right solution to the right problem yeah. versus looking for this silver bullet that solves everything. Yeah. I'm afraid that's, that's difficult. You know, I, I promised to come back to uh, diesel early on in the conversation, right? So we looked at, okay, what might we be able to use instead of diesel and CNG, LNG, hydrogen, ammonia, trolley assist, b- batteries. All of this is very, very difficult, very uneconomic today. Now, over time, that could emerge. And that's where renewable diesel was one of those uh-huh. n- not massively scalable, but an option we have today right. as a drop-in fuel, yeah. right? Big Be- bega- began to make sense. Uh-huh. Uh, but that's, that's a difficult not, not, not to crack, particularly for heavy-duty vehicles it's very diesel intensive yeah. and it, and it'll continue to will, uh, will be, be so. Yeah.
2: Yeah. So yeah. I'm going to take away wind, solar storage, battery storage, and CCUS as the kind of the big four.
1: With an asterisk towards nuclear.
2: Well, I mean, I think nuclear, hydrogen, n- nuclear, in my opinion, I'm breaking the rule of being a podcast host and throwing out my own opinion as opposed to asking the guests. But, um, Nuclear is a timing issue, not a technical issue. Hydrogen's a technical issue, technical economic issue, from from my perspective. And both of them seem to be t- take some time.
1: Well, I'm going to take away here that one of the things you said was a coordination coordination issue. Uh, issue, excuse me. And actually, the earlier in the podcast when I was listening to you talk about your career, um, you you have such a cool career, and I'm not just saying this because you're in front of me. You, it's unique. It's unique because it's oil and gas related, and you're a supply chain guy with you know some with some sales and whatnot. And I thought to myself as you were talking, I thought it takes. It reminded me of that book Outliers, the Malcolm Gladwell book, and how it's usually these people with these where a set of circumstances and then timing happens, and that timing usually equates to their moment of opportunity to step into something, and if they have the moment of opportunity and the and they're given it, the, and they step in. They can do great things. And so you were describing your background in Sri Lanka to Georgia to Houston is a very uncommon background. That's right. You know, and then within there, the pipeline to oil and gas to frac to this is a an uncommon career path. And I as so you're describing that. I thought it's going to take something like this to understand all the different moving pieces of a puzzle. So then when you said the coordination issue issue. I, I really thought, I wonder if he sees the irony in his path to be able to see that there is that coordination uh, moment. So, you know, there's someone that's going to hear this that has some crazy background that they, I don't know if they view it as an opportunity for them, but it's going to be someone like that, that you and, and others that you're bringing up, etc., that i hope that they hear this and and i'm i'm glad that you said that cuz actually i th- i think that's a really good point is you know we don't know who's going to make the difference but it's going to be somebody that we don't expect that has all these different puzzle pieces that they're able to co- coordinate it so that's what i'm taking out of it
2: or it will be elon musk that does it cuz he does everything he does everything yeah. so
1: it's either him or somebody with yes. a unique background so
2: elon delonca or someone. Right. Um, I think that's the first
3: time and probably the last there, time there you go. those two names will be in the same sentence. <laughs> Maybe not. <laughs>
2: um, what, what advice do you give? You're, you're a traditional oil and gas person, energy person, that's kind of transitioned into this lower carbon environment. Um, you got any advice to others who want to do that or what... What do you what do you say to thirty year olds that want to
3: look? I I think I would say you know try to get kind of different experiences. Josh, you, you mentioned earlier kind of the outliers um, uh, book, etc. You know, I think you have to try to get different sets of experiences. That'll mm-hmm. help you get kind of different vantage points. That's going to help, I think, in this coordination issue mm-hmm. because if you if you do only one thing. Yeah. then you, you, it's difficult sometimes to see kind of other points of, of, of view. So I think a, a, a diverse experience set probably is one thing. To keep an open mind is is one of these things. Like I think if you th- particularly when you think about the evolution of the energy system, I don't think anyone can say hey, it's going to be this way or the other way. I think you had to think in kind of frameworks or to think in scenarios. You know, what are the various scenarios the world ends up being in 2050? And What's the energy mix in each of those scenarios, right? And then if you're driving towards one scenario versus another, then you have a differentiated energy mix. So, to keeping an open mind uh, about that, I think you know, just say, oh, that'll never work, or yeah. this is the only way it'll happen. I think is it w- will be uh, will be counterproductive. Uh-huh. Um, and then the other one is kind of staying the course. You know, Dan, when we saw each other earlier this week in the the heart. Uh, uh, event uh, where they uh, kind of honored or called these captains of industry, so to speak. You know, one of the, my takeaways was that, man, these guys been at it mm-hmm. for a long time. Yes. And has seen ups and downs. There were yes. times, uh, you know, think about someone like uh, Harold Hamm or Audrey Stevens. Like These guys have just, right, and they've just stuck to it for yeah. decades and decades and decades, right? That's how you find long-term success that's how you do difficult things Uh right and and so so that's actually been a bit was a takeaway for me from that event you know no need to get too excited nor too discouraged by anything stick at it you just you have to just stick at it it. great point that's a good one too
2: that's really good um let's finish with a change of topic so your bio you're you're on the board of houston's big brothers big sisters organization um I don't know if that means you have been or are a big brother, um, but give us a give us a feel good story around Big Brothers Big Sisters.
3: Yes, thank you for bringing that up. Um, I started volunteering with Big Brothers Big Sisters in in two thousand nine, so fourteen years ago mm-hmm. as a big brother. So yep. I had a brother. Um, and one thing that led me to that is because I've been just the beneficiary of a lot of people's goodwill. Uh-huh. I mentioned Paula early on, who ca- kind of was my mentor and really gave me a shot in the energy business. And since then, I've had many bosses, many colleagues uh, who's really, especially someone who came to this country without a network, uh-huh. so to speak, not knowing anyone, n- no one that my parents could call for, uh, for you know, to give a me paper. advice or a favor. Yeah. Right. Right. Uh, I had to rely on on folks who just took me under their wing, just out of the goodness of their hearts. So, my earlier insight when I started volunteering was that's a way to give back. Uh, and then, as I got into it, is when I realized how much, even in a city like Houston, which is kind of pretty well endowed, uh, you know, lot of good industry, low unemployment rate, lots economic prosperity, yeah. lots mm-hmm. of resources. Uh, the, the the amount of adversity that some young children face mm-hmm. yeah and and you know there are there there are children in 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 Houston that that are food insecure which means that they don't they don't have a consistent three meals a day you know, there are kids in Houston who hasn't been on an escalator right why because they may have never needed to go to one of these buildings because they don't know anyone who works there so these are kind of experiences I've heard through it and big brothers big sisters plays an amazing role in, in providing one-to-one matching between these kids um, kind of who face adversity and match them with a mentor who will help them realize their fullest potential. Uh, so it's, it's an organization I've been involved with for a long time. I joined the board about uh, 11 years ago, uh, been on the board since, uh, and, and, and I really, really enjoy it. Kind of, I started as a, maybe a way of giving back uh, but then now it's got to a point where it's very much part of my identity. A lot of my friends are through this organization. Mm-hmm. And uh, I'll, I'll, I'll uh, plug this, Dan. Uh, next year, uh, my wife and I are chairing the gala for mm. Big Brothers Big Sisters. So it's going to be next October, and it's, uh, it's, it's going to be a great time.
2: October 24. I'll, we'll put it on the calendar. Absolutely. That's right. I was a big brother uh, 25 years ago. Nice. Yeah. It's cool. It's huh? a great organization. It's a great thing
1: um let us know on that we'll promote it over here too yeah absolutely yeah
2: so now we get to thank you for all of the insights into the energy business and and great story um and so we do our lightning round which uh we don't mess around yeah this is this is the hard-hitting conclusion of our podcast and the only rule is you only get to give Josh says number one. One word answer. Yes, yes or no. no. Okay. A, B, no, no explanation. It helps us get to know you better as, as we finish up here. So um, you want to kick it off, Josh?
1: Yes. Work from the home or, or, excuse me, work from the office or work from home?
2: Office. Pizza or hamburgers? Pizza.
1: Barbie or Oppenheimer? Oppenheimer.
2: Wind or solar? Solar. Carbon capture or hydrogen? Carbon capture. Taylor Swift or YouTube? YouTube.
1: Nice. Okay. Um, will the world hit net zero by 2050? No. He, he is really good. Definitive. At this. Definitive.
2: Yeah, I like great. it. So many people waffle. Around, oh, well, the, he, he's he's following the rules. I like <laughs> yes, it. Cash yes. or crypto? Cash.
1: Disney Plus or
2: Netflix? Netflix. The S and P 500 for 2024. Are you bullish or bearish? Bullish.
1: Uh, F-150 uh,
2: or a Ford Lightning? F-150.
3: Tokyo or Rio? Hmm. I like both those cities very much.
1: Tokyo. <laughs> um, does the... Um you, you take these next two, and I'll get this last one here. That way, you can. Okay. Yeah.
2: Uh, does the Ukraine conflict continue beyond June of twenty-four? Yes. What about the Israel-Hamas conflict? Same time frame, June twenty-four.
3: Yes. Yes to
2: both. Uh, another IRA-type bill in the next three years? No. And the most important question: Will the Houston and the only consistent question in the lightning round? Your will l- the level Houston of friendship Texans with make the Super Bowl in the next decade?
3: <laughs> he uh, wants to say no. <laughs> he looked at me and laughed. You no, know, you. If you live here, yes. Of Thank you. The there answer. you go, buddy. Yes.
2: <laughs> Deluge. Higher in.
3: than chance of meeting net zero in 2050.
2: Ah, that's a really good way yes. to put it, and, and and I also agree with that too. Hmm. Um, the website's www.inlink.com. Mm-hmm. DeLanka, Simon, thank you very much for being with us today. Yeah,
1: thank you for having me. Thank you, sir. (laughs) A lot of fun. Great job. Have Uh a great holiday season here
3: as well. You too. Yep.